Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray that through these poor words, these human words, your living, eternal word might be heard. One that shines light in the darkness, and one that brings life to the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. You might be hearing a slight beeping from that direction. Do not be alarmed. Uh, um, <laughs> just don't be alarmed, okay? Uh, people, I keep hearing somebody say, what's that beeping noise? It's just the alarm, and it's okay. Don't be alarmed. Okay, there we go. I remember long ago, before I was a card-carrying Jesus person, way back in my first year of university, I had a girlfriend. I know that's, that's hard to imagine, right? <laughs> and this girlfriend was unique. She was very unique because she was a faithful, committed member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons. I won't go too deep into detail about them here. You can look it up on Wikipedia or go to your local library and look it up on, in the encyclopedia if you aren't familiar, but Mormons are well known for taking the laws, the practices of their faith quite seriously. Church on Sundays, no friends or company over Sunday afternoons because it's family time, no caffeine, no drinking, uh, no sex before marriage, missions for each young man that are well known for annoying and freaking out the rest of us. I love it when they come to my door. Um, we're always chatting about it. They're known for the things that they're required to do or not require, required not to do based on their faith. And one of the other things each member of the Church of Latter-day Saints is expected to do is tithe, to give 10% of the money they make to the church. My Mormon girlfriend at the time worked part-time as a Subway sandwich artist. One day a week, so her take-home minus deductions was like $73 or something like that. And I joked with her about her obligation to donate some of that money to her church, that $73. Not expecting that even a true believer like herself would give if she had so little. She was a student, barely making any money, so it seemed ridiculous to me to waste what she had on church. I was sure that the church would be fine without it. Besides, I'd rather her spend it wisely like I did, which was on beer, of course. But as ridiculous as it seemed, she told me that she did, in fact, donate $7.30 of each week's paycheck to the church, even though she didn't have much to give. And of course, at the time, I thought it was ridiculous. To me, it was just another tick box for her to win God's favor. To me, it seemed like legalism, just another religious obligation, just because God said so. One that they'd use to guilt you with to make sure the church was packed with cash. Oh, how convenient that God wants you to receive 10%, of course. 
It not only seemed unfair, it seemed like a hardship to me, like an unnecessary burden that one would be required to give even if they had so little. So you can probably guess that this relationship didn't last long. I never became a Mormon, obviously, unless you're in the wrong place. You're like, oh, geez, I'm in the wrong place right now. And it was the sense of legal requirement that bothered me the most, the thing that kept me from considering Mormonism in the first place, not just about giving, but about everything. In fact, it's the thing that kept me from considering Christianity, let alone Mormonism in the first place, because this is how I thought it worked. It was legalism. Do this, do that, then God will bless you. Pay your dues, and then you'll belong. Now, obviously, something changed my mind about Christianity down the road. I am, after all, standing here uh, as the head Jesus freak among other Jesus freaks, if you so wish to call yourself that. Otherwise, this would have been the worst beginning of a sermon on stewardship ever. You know how stupid giving to the church is? But I still bristle at legalism. The notion that there's anything we have to do, anything we can do to earn God's unmerited favor, God's blessing, God's grace. I mean, that's why it's called God's unmerited favor. That's why it's called grace. But I've come a long way because I've come to understand these things are often presented backwards. Follow the rule, then you'll be blessed. But in fact, the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition have always thought about it as the other way around, and it's passages like this morning's passage from Deuteronomy that have actually changed this for me. Of course, this morning's passage comes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, which means second law. Uh-oh, legalism. Oh, no. This book is a long series of sermons delivered by Moses, the leader of the Israelites, as they prepare to enter the land of Canaan, also known as the Promised Land. Our passage itself comes after a long section of law. It's sort of the end of a long section of law itself. This is a whole new niche nation, and these people are setting up, so they need laws. They'll need rules and regulations to govern the life of the community as they enter and settle the promised land together. I mean, and what's a law code without a tax code? This part of the law is what the Israelites are ob obligated to share with the community for the common good. And here's how it goes. When you have come into the land, begins the passage, when you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it, you shall take some of the first fruits of the ground which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. So first, take the first fruits of your crop. These people are all farmers, obviously. Take the first and best. Take it first before you've put your share aside, Moses says. First thing you do before you divvy up your crop, put it in a basket, take it down to God's dwelling place, 
And at this point, I mean, it's interesting because at this point, they don't know it's going to be a temple, but later on it'll be the temple, the holy place at the beating heart of the community, and he says, give it to the priests. Now, like I said, at first, this passage sounds like the legalism I feared had brainwashed my Mormon girlfriend. The one that I just, I didn't want to be brainwashed like them. I mean, after all, it is from a book called The Second Law, the second long list of required obligations for God's people. And it sounds like do this or else God's judgment will come upon you, but it's more than that. It's more than filling out your tax return and sending it to Canada Revenue on time. The people bring their first fruits to the priest at the temple, yes, but when they do so, they recite a response. This is what the response is. So you bring the basket, you enter the temple, you hand it to the priest, and then you say this. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and oppression, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He brought us into this place. He gave us this land, this land full of milk and honey. So now I bring the first fruit of the offering of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. The fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. So when the people swing by the temple with their offering, when they bring their offering in, they recite the story of how they got to the promised land in the first place. Because if you remember, 40 years prior, Moses and his people were freed from slavery in Egypt. And following their exit from Egypt, they wandered the desert for 40 years. Years And now they stand on the edge of the desert. They're about to leave the desert. They're about to leave slavery in Egypt behind them forever. They're about to, to leave from slavery to head into freedom and from poverty to plenty. When they give, they recite the story of how they came into the land, how they got there, because for them, the act of giving at the temple, the act of generosity, isn't just a legal requirement, a rule, or a pattern to receive God's blessing. They write, recite the story of where the fruit came from to begin with. They recite the story of who brought them there out of Egypt, that it was God who delivered them from Egypt and brought them into the land. For them, the act of giving isn't something that buys you grace, it's a response to grace. A response to God's liberation. It's an act of remembrance and an act of gratitude at the same time. Because the source of their life and the source of their crop is something that's really easy to forget. They did not pull themselves up by their bootstraps out of Egypt. I mean, could you imagine that? Remember, 
says the Lord your God. You brought yourselves up with your bootstraps out of Egypt. You worked your hardest, and you got there. No. This is the exact opposite. It's so easy to forget. And this is why we Christians often so have it backwards, because we forget. But this text shows us what's so revolutionary about Christianity, about Jesus and his way, that God comes to us first with grace, with liberation, with unconditional love and mercy that sets us free. And so giving isn't a holy obligation. It's not a hardship, not an act of enslavement. It's a reminder of their liberation. Generosity is a response to grace. Grace stokes gratitude. Generosity is a response to grace and a mark of freedom, not slavery. Freedom, not obligation. We don't give because we gotta give but we give because it's been given to us first. It's scripture passages like this and the generosity of other people that I've met along the road that have changed my mind. I mean, I'm not about to become a Mormon at all. That's not what's changed my mind about that. This church is so bad, I've decided to become a Mormon. No. <laughs> And it's this thing that's changed my own life and my family's life for the better, too. It's knowing that there's no place in our lives that God doesn't want to transform. And what we do with our money is one of those things, in one of those places. And so for us, every month, before everything else is tallied up, as a family, we set aside those first fruits. And those first fruits come here, to this place. Even though we first get them to St. George's, from St. George's. Well, actually, it's automatic withdrawal. We don't set aside any fruits. We're sort of, the bank sets aside our fruits for us without us asking every month. We don't have the choice. If we did, it'd probably be harder. We don't do it because it's required from us of us, and that's the difference between Mormonism and Orthodox Protestant Christianity. It's a gift that is totally free will. We do it because the church for us provides the cornerstone in our lives. I mean, we give because we truly believe in this community of faith, don't get me wrong. The self-giving love that's on display every week, bearing one another's burdens, reaching out to the least and lost through the soup kitchen, 120 people on average, Monday through Friday. That's significant. And I've told my friends that giving to St. George's has as much impact, per dollar, of course, as any other good social service. But it's so much more than that for us. It represents the most important thing in our lives, our identity as people who have been loved and liberated by the God we meet in Jesus. I mean, we don't do it because we're extraordinary, generous people. In fact, it's the exact opposite. We set it aside because it's a spiritual discipline to make us better at giving. 
a practice that reminds us first that God is the source of all good things, that we wouldn't exist without God, we wouldn't be who we are without God, and we wouldn't have come to know the deep sense of joy, meaning, and purpose we have that's changed everything for us without God. Without God, we have nothing. Without Jesus, we have nothing. And so it's for a way for us to love and lo- as God has loved us first. It's been said that grace comes to us on our way to somebody else. So it's also a way for us to become more like God, to grow in the image of Jesus by taking our part in a community that embodies the good news. A community that's here to be Jesus to the world and for the world. It's something that's just so easy to forget. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, I can't tell you how much to give or to even give to this church at all. I, as I've made clear, I am not the bishop of your local Mormon congregation. But I can tell you what the practice of giving has done for me, has done for us as a family. It's brought us joy to see our money well spent as a part of being part of this amazing community of faith. It's a reminder to us of who we are week after week after week. That's so easy to forget. It helps us trust that we have enough. In God's kingdom, The way is abundance and not scarcity. For us, giving isn't a chain you've got to wrap around your neck, some sort of painful obligation, though the first time we did it, it did pinch a little bit. Fewer coffees, fewer chips. The chips thing is what really got me, I think. Less chips. Ah. But for us, it's a response to grace first and foremost, an act of gratitude, one that reminds us of who we are and who we belong to and a discipline, a practice through which God is shaping us into more generous, loving people, a way God is making us more like Jesus day after day after day after day. One paycheck at a time. for this. Thanks be to God. Amen.